This episode contains discussions of PTSD, anxiety, loneliness, and broader mental health issues. Listener discretion is advised. If you need to talk to someone, resources are linked in the episode description. Psychology has been about human-to-human interaction, but more and more there's recognition that machines may be able to augment the interventions that had traditionally been delivered by other humans to humans and actually assist people in dealing with quite serious mental health issues. This is Dr Carolyn Semler, an Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Adelaide. She leads the Applied Cognition and Experimental Psychology Group and is pushing the field of mental health treatment into new territory. It's easier often for people not to feel that pressure of the stigma associated with mental health issues when they know that they're not talking to another person. So they're talking to an intelligent agent who can give them meaningful responses, but they know that that's not going to be another human being who may well be judging them. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and today we're joined by an advocate for better mental health practices in Australia. Carolyn not only exposes the deficiencies in our mental health care system, but also explores fascinating developments in artificial intelligence to improve access to this vital form of new health care. This is the Discovery Pod. Hi, Carolyn, and welcome to the Discovery Pod. Hi, Andy. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And you are Associate Professor in the School of Psychology, so... I feel like I'm asking the right person for this question because Australia is experiencing a mental health crisis with thousands of people on waiting lists for treatment and equally as many that can't get on the list. What's going wrong in our society? Oh, that's a huge question, Andy. (laughs) And if we had a single answer, we'd all be packing up and going home, basically. It's, It's quite complex. Obviously, There's a lot going on in the world at the moment, Mm. which is outside of our control. We've got climate change, we've got the pandemic, we've got natural disasters happening. We've got a society in which people probably are under a lot of pressure, you know, financially. There's a lot happening that's making things difficult. And people, I think, are experiencing fundamentally a lack of control over their own environment. And it's making things really difficult. And I think also we've got a lot more loneliness in society. People are on their own a lot more. Mm. Um, In fact, that's nearly considered an epidemic as well because of its implications for mental health, but also health more broadly. And it's not just older people who are feeling lonely, it's also the young. Mm. So there's, yeah, there's a whole multitude of factors that are really uh, quite large challenges for people at the moment. Yeah. Mental health really came to the fore as an issue during covid but it's not leaving us now. We're not getting out of that post-COVID, are we? No, we're not. In fact, the number of referrals to places like Lifeline and other helplines is, has increased and, and it's not flattening off. And you, if you ask anyone who's involved in the primary healthcare sector, they'll tell you that you know they're getting huge numbers of referrals for mental health support and it just isn't changing. It's been two years since the pandemic broke, and with most of our working world returning to some form of equilibrium, much of the rest of our lives seem to have been permanently disrupted. We've heard again and again how bad lockdowns can be for our mental health. Right now, millions of people are being told to stay at home. The stay at home has been important, but it does come 
with an increase in anxiety. We've been calling it the silent pandemic. Mental health is at the top of the agenda for pretty much every organization. Firstly, there's the stress and disruption and anxiety. Even prior to the pandemic, healthcare workers were at high risk of suicide. But now experts are voicing concerns that the growing pressure from COVID is having serious effects on their mental health. The fear is those statistics will remain long after the COVID-19 crisis passes. We are seeing increased rates of self-harm as well as that suicidal ideation. So we're certainly not out of the woods. Dramatic life changes or stressful events are strong predictors for depression and anxiety. Since our entire lifestyle has changed, it's no wonder we're suffering. While societal impacts are weighing heavily on us, is it our responsibility as individuals to put the wheels back on the wagon? And how do we even begin to tackle a problem this big? People talk a lot about, you know, this term resilience, but what does that actually mean? Because I think resilience can be used as a bit of a term to try to place the responsibility back on the individual, but it's not always just about the individual. It's often about <laughs> so the So you should structure. be more resilient. You should be more resilient. Yeah, yeah. Just take responsibility for your own mental health and it'll be fine. But in reality, when there's a lot of complex factors that are occurring, it means that people are reaching a point when, you know, they're in crisis. And, they, and things yeah. like, you know, loneliness contribute to that as yeah. well, don't they? So right. how do we start tackling the kind of mental health crisis? Where, where, where would you start? So, oh goodness, another <laughs> huge question. So I think first and foremost, we need to acknowledge that there's a limit to people's ability to cope independently or as individuals. Yeah. A lot of, you know, larger strategies around mental health really focus on trying to understand some of the systemic issues that are occurring that could be helped. So with loneliness, for example, things like social prescriptions for uh, social outings as something that GPs are trying out. So actually, you know, really practical things that reconnect people with one another that help them to find those social networks that where they can speak to someone about the issues that they're going through. Uh, critically important, uh, recognising that it's not always possible for people to connect socially if, you know, their nine to five is working from home. So some of the changes that have been positive in some regards have also taken away some of those networks and some of that reservoir of positive experience that can help people to manage their mental health. Yeah. And so, you know, that reconnection is part of that. But also a lot of your, your research is actually looking at the potential applications of artificial intelligence and other technologies. So how can computers help uh, with, with this, this this whole paradigm? Yeah, it's a, a really interesting new kind of field of endeavour. So fundamentally, psychology has been about human-to-human -human interaction. But more and more, there's recognition that um, machines may be able to assist or at least augment the interventions that had traditionally been delivered by other humans to humans and actually assist people in dealing with quite serious mental health issues. Mm. So for a long period of time, psychologists have been using computer-aided support systems for diagnosis and treatment, sometimes, uh, for example, with regard to things like phobias and anxieties. There's also a lot of apps now on phones that are about uh, trying to regulate mood and emotion there's like a, an entire kind of ecosystem full of different technologies that people are starting to explore to apply to different mental health conditions and symptoms, both to diagnosis, early intervention, but also then to treatment and monitoring post-intervention. 
So it's an enormous field. Mm. In my own work, we've been focusing in particularly on the issue of trying to understand uh, what happens when people are exposed to online content that's quite negative and unsettling, what happens to them physiologically and psychologically that might then lead them to experience some of the symptomatology associated with things like post-traumatic stress disorder, so intrusive memories and thoughts that are problematic and that can lead them to become unwell. Mm. So. That work is using multiple different types of technological approaches, including video analytics, psychophysiological measurement, and then ecological momentary sampling, which is basically trying to follow that person up over time and getting a, a self-report of their mood and their thoughts and whether they've had any intrusive thoughts or memories over the, uh, a period of time. So we can use that data then to feed into an algorithm that's basically trained for that individual person to see whether or not they're going to have, you know, that kind of negative consequence of exposure. Yeah. So you can you can monitor that and look at that, but uh, how do you develop or help develop strategies for people to cope with, mm. with that kind of scenario? Presumably you're getting to that, the pointy end with the research. Uh, yeah. So yeah. to look at the, the incidence of PTSD and other yeah. uh, issues. I love ecological momentary sampling as a, as a methodology. Maybe delve into that a little bit more and kind of really take us through how this works. Okay, so... Ecological momentary sampling is really another way of getting a moment-by-moment moment indication of that person's uh, mental uh, state throughout the day. So you might have, for example, we might have exposed people or known that a person has been exposed to an event or a, an image or a video or something. And then over the next seven days, what we would do would be to contact them via SMS and they simply complete some measures associated with intrusions or intrusive memories and thoughts and mood and emotion mm -hmm. at several time points. And then we can use that data, feed that data back into the, the model and determine whether or not um, that person is, um, you know, reaching a point where they might need some kind of intervention. Yeah. The other aspect of that work is to actually try to look for predictors of intrusions. So at the time of exposure there might be particular responses both in that person's uh, cognition and their physiology that may well be predictive of whether or not they developed uh, an anxiety issue uh, associated with that initial exposure. So prevention is better than cure, obviously. If we could get to the point where for that individual we can actually monitor them quite effectively, we can put things in place immediately at exposure that might stop them from then developing an ongoing uh, and escalating anxiety disorder. Yeah. That's the ultimate aim of the research. And what kind of interventions would you put in place? Okay, so this is a really interesting work that's been done by some colleagues, uh, in fact, several different groups around the world. But some of the things might seem really odd, but some interventions are about trying to keep that person's visuospatial working memory system occupied immediately after exposure to a particular event or image or video. So it can mean things kind, like... Kind of what we're talking about, we're talking about battlefield scenes, we might be talking well, car crashes, yeah. we might be talking those kind of traumatic scenes yeah, that yeah. people yeah, may, may be get exposed to. Yeah, but it's not just the one-off, it's those people that have... Multiple exposures. ...careers or yeah. uh, jobs that uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, lead to that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah, that population, it might be part of their role to actually be exposed multiple times to, to various things. But 
what we what we need to be able to do is basically try to get them to integrate the information or the things that they've experienced and seen into a memory structure and a meaningful interpretation of the world that prevents them from essentially developing a situation where they they can't integrate that information meaningfully into a life story. So it sounds very woolly, but what we want them to be able to do is if there are moments where they experience a cue again in the environment that's associated with that initial exposure, that they're going to be able to recognise that cue and not see it as a threat and therefore not experience the physiological kind of symptoms associated with an increase in anxiety. So there's been a whole bunch of different interventions. So you're trying to keep those cues away from normal life cues. Well, we're trying to integrate them okay. back into a meaningful kind of framework yeah. so that they're not kind of free-floating and meaningless and yeah. potentially developing into intrusive, unbidden thoughts that just pop into the person's head um, you know, without any kind of warning. Mm. So the work that we're doing at the moment is looking at kinds of immediate reinterpretations of the images that they might be seeing. So immediate intervention sort of saying, okay, these are the things that you saw. Let's talk about what you saw. Let's really try to make some sense and meaning out of that immediate experience. So essentially, it's kind of a reframing mm. uh, of that experience and an acknowledgement that what they've seen is actually highly abnormal, highly not usual, and that their response is normal to it. So one of the things that's often shown in the research in this area is that people struggle with the notion that what they're experiencing in terms of a, a re-triggering of a cue is not normal and that there's something desperately wrong with them. And then that kind of feeds into this negative feedback loop where they're getting anxious about the possibility of becoming anxious. So if you can kind of intervene very early on and get that thinking a little bit, for want of a better term, corrected immediately, you may be less likely to see the ongoing difficulties associated with those negative intrusive thoughts. Yeah. Another one that's been tried is getting people to reintegrate the memory effectively, but also to keep the mind busy immediately after exposure. So they've tried getting people to play Tetris, which is, <laughs> seems like it would never work, but there's a few studies who, that have shown that that might actually help people to some extent. The majority of it, though, is really about reframing and you know trying to make sense of what they've seen. A lot of people talk about moral injury. So sometimes it's the moral implications of what people have seen that can be really troubling for them. So some of the work we've been doing recently has been with content moderators. So these are people that are seeing the worst of the internet every day in their job mm. and working out whether or not it should be, you know, going up online or not. Mm. They talk a lot about making sense of their role um, from the perspective of being a protector of society and of protecting the community from exposure to that kind kind of content. So they can kind of integrate the information and the exposure to what they're seeing by really identifying very strongly with the positive aspect of their role and saying, well, you know, I'm doing something good. There's other instances where difficulties still arise for people. So, for example, in the child exploitation space, um, we know that people in that area have real difficulties in terms of dealing with what they've seen because it's so traumatic and there's so much moral injury going on there that they're not they're simply not able to make sense of what they've seen and also the the difficulty can often be as a function of them knowing that they're not going to be able to stop what's happened mm. which can be very problematic and and quite debilitating for those people 
So there are many things that, you know, we're hoping to be able to do, including trying to find out if there are individual differences in terms of the people who should be doing these types of roles. Mm. So for some people, they should never be exposed to these types of roles because for whatever reason, they don't have the psychological makeup to be able to... Just too sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. And even if they think that they might be able to handle that role, it may be the case that, in fact, they're not suited to it. So again, it's about prevention and trying to find the predictors of that ability to make sense and to potentially sometimes reprocess that information effectively so that they can integrate back into into their everyday life. It's surprising the number of jobs where people are exposed and the only thing they get is a little bit of counselling or debriefing, but there's not any questions about whether or not they should have even been in that role in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And as we understand more and more about that, we can we can help. We can bring the human side back into the internet as well. Yeah. Parallels between the functioning of the human brain and computer software are obvious. But can we use computers to better detect and treat mental health disorders without a human dimension? And can we harness the rapidly developing area of artificial intelligence to fill the gap in mental health support. There's a few key areas that they say are the new term AI drivers, and you know one of those is health. So the AI in this case is behaving like a calculator, where it's processing information and providing basically parameters to use in their diagnosis. Our speech, how fast we talk, and our tone, intonation, if we sigh a lot, all these things, they go into this algorithm, and then comes out of it is where is this person's state of mind? You really don't know if you're even speaking to a human or a computer because the engines have become so intelligent to pick up those words. We have for the first time been able to forensically analyze the actual content of therapy, even down to the level of individual words used by the therapists. While AI has the ability to bridge the divide between those who suffer from mental illness and the help they need, the path forward is clouded by questions of ethics, morals, international law, and of course, data. Yeah, so there is a bit of research now suggesting that you can lower the barrier to seeking help and seeking support by not having another human uh, interacting with the hang on, person. Hang on, You can lower the barrier by not having a human. Yes. How, how does that work? <laughs> so it's easier often for people not to feel that pressure of the stigma associated with mental health issues when they know that they're not talking to another person. So they're talking to a, an intelligent agent who can give them, you know, meaningful responses, but they know that that's not going to be another human being who may well be judging them and think, sitting there thinking, this person's crazy. <laughs> so, um, there's been a little bit of work showing that that's a help to people, but there are then also some things about that. So there's a need for a therapeutic alliance to be established. I'm not a, obviously not a clinical psychologist, but there is some work showing that the digital therapeutic alliance is quite different to the kind of uh, interpersonal therapeutic alliance that you might develop with a therapist. And the jury's still out a little bit as to how effective that alliance is and the kinds of features that need to be built into an artificial intelligence system to actually ensure that that actually occurs. 
And I guess there's also issues to do with monitoring people for, you know, the seriousness of the mental health issue that they're experiencing and if they're in danger and whether they actually need to um, have immediate help. So there's, it's very, it's not an easy problem to apply technology to. And I think that um, from an ethics perspective, there's also issues around the extent to which algorithms are trained on particular populations. For example, if you train an algorithm just with a particular population or group, then of course it's only really going to be effective within that population or group. And as soon as you take it out of that, you might find that it's actually not as effective in terms of the responses that it provides. Some of the language learning, uh, some of the language models that are now developed and are openly accessible on the internet Mm. are incredibly sophisticated Mm. and they're trained across a huge corpus of culturally diverse content online. So they're less culturally bound than perhaps some of the earlier models, which were, you know, trained on very narrow data sets. But the question is, how do we feel about talking <laughs> to a, an artificial intelligence algorithm? And what, uh, in, from an ethical perspective, do people need to know that that it's an intelligent agent they're speaking to and not a real person? Because mm. there's there's issues there to do with what happens to that data. Because as as you're interacting with that agent, presumably that data is going then back into the algorithm and it's retraining if it's an adaptive algorithm. So is it okay for that data to be used uh, to improve the model? Who has ownership over that data? How do we ensure privacy, confidentiality? Yeah, so there are many, many issues which, you know, we train clinicians in terms of those issues, privacy uh, their responsibility in relation to assess, I guess, uh, client confidentiality, the ethics of you know the responses that they provide and the treatment that they provide, mm. their eth- ethical requirement to use evidence-based practices, so to only ever use therapies that have actually been tested and and tried and are empirically valid. So there's a huge array of ethical responsibilities. But that, these systems are, are being applied now, are they? they? Can, they can, we can interact with them now. You can, yes, you can. And so, what, what kind of uh, what kind of context are they being applied within? So there are different online um, chatbots for uh, that you can use for various interactions. In some countries, there's governance around them that's a little bit more strict than other countries. Yeah, they're out there. It's certainly not the case that they're you know, still in development. They're, they're being applied still, at, from what you've described, really getting quite sophisticated and getting more sophisticated. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And as time continues, the prediction is that they'll be, they will be indistinguishable from interacting with, you know, an actual human. What does that mean for, <laughs> for, <laughs> for our choices and, our, and our, what we choose to divulge, the meaning that we derive from that interaction? There are so many different aspects to this that haven't really been widely discussed in society that I think Mm. those conversations need to be had and governance frameworks need to be informed by what our beliefs are around the effective treatment of mental illness and Mm. uh, early identification of problems and prevention of harm. But also then we need to think about what do we really want from that kind of technology. But that hasn't stopped a trickle of AI-powered therapy bots, or WoBots, from entering the market and finding their way onto our phones. So how do we pick the good bots from the bad bots and find the right digital doctor to confide in? 
You talked about some of the automated services that, that are available online. How do we get access to those? Do you go to your GP? Is there apps that you can download? And what's the most trusted source of, of getting to the, the available help at the moment? So at the moment, it's like the Wild West, <laughs> I'm afraid. You can actually da- very easily download different types of mental health support apps onto your phone. There's been quite a spate of them as well recently. I've seen quite a few on my feed that come through. Yeah. And uh, it seems to be, you know, wellness and things are the, the latest thing, aren't they? They are the latest thing. The difficulty is that the average person doesn't really know how to evaluate the evidence base for them. So one source, a good source of information is the Australian Psychological Society. And any registered psychologist really is going to have a good idea of what's evidence-based and what isn't. There are particular apps that have been developed within universities and have very good empirical evidence behind them. Um, and then there's others that have kind of been developed by someone who's decided that they're just going to come up with <laughs> mental health and wellbeing app, which is quite problematic at the moment. And it is, mm. it is a bit of an ungoverned space. Because mm. there's no standards. You can just, you know, write a program and then uh, yeah. sell it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there are trusted sources in terms of, you know, the empirical evidence behind things, but definitely... If you're seeking that kind of support, have a look at the APS website and they they can give some good direction around that. And in the United States has the APA, which is kind of the equivalent of our APS, um, and they also list evidence-based apps and things. So uh, I've got a quick question. What's the difference between a a chat bot and a a WoeBot, as in W-O-E instead of robot, WoeBot? Oh, (laughs) so a chat bot. Uh, I guess is a more generic term. A robot's really about being used, I suppose, for <laughs> a specific purpose. But both of them work, you know, in the same sort of way in that it's a, a dynamic interaction between an intelligent agent and, and you with the idea of the robot probably being a little bit more about trying to modify your, your mood state and uh, get you thinking in a way that's going to improve your, your current mood. But yeah, again, evidence space for those things is still being built and yet they're out there in the world. So, yeah. yeah. And I guess, you know, technology and AI is is filling some of the gap, which is basically that we don't really have enough uh, psychologists and psychological support in society. What, why aren't we training more people to actually do those really important jobs? Oh, this is the <laughs> big question and one that our undergraduates are always asking us. And really what it comes down to is there's a training bottleneck So there are only so many qualified, endorsed supervisors in Australia that can take on trainees. So much like in medicine where you might train for a particular specialisation in psychology, you also have to train for a specialisation. And it requires thousands of hours of actual placement with an experienced supervisor who can train you in the interpersonal skill set required to be an effective clinician. Mm. So there are only so many people in that workforce. They're also an ageing workforce. So it's quite a difficult bottleneck at the moment. And one challenge that, you know, we're really having to look at and try to work out how do we actually get people who really want to become psychologists through that training pathway in a more efficient manner. But at the moment, because of our requirements around the levels of competency required for a clinician, it's just a matter of not having enough clinicians already out there in the world. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, ageing, sector doing it one way, new generation that's happy to try a different way. Do you think we are going to get the younger generation really embracing the AI uh, systems and uh, uh, not not so much tapping into the, the interpersonal and human uh, systems that we've 
which, which are tried and trusted for so long. I think it's quite possible that we might see a shift in in the use of, of technologies for supporting mental health. And mm. in fact, we've probably already really started to see it. Yeah. What I think our role is as responsible uh, researchers is to ensure that whenever a technology is adopted, it's evidence-based and it, it's effective and, and there's no, or not no risk, but minimal risk uh, in terms of negative consequences for that individual. So that when, if they do need to see a human, they'll get to see a human. So we can't, we can't obviously replace that true interpersonal and human support after all, if you look at people's responses during the pandemic to being in isolation, that was one of the hardest things to deal with, mm. not having that interpersonal human contact. That really is what keeps us well, I think. Imagine, imagine you've been awarded a massive grant to do whatever you wanted. How are you going to make history? That is an awesome question. And let me just reflect on that possibility of a large amount of research funding. Untied funding to do whatever you wanted. Over a 10-year period. No questions. Goodness. I think that I would I'd look at where people are suffering the most in our society at the moment. So I'd look at how well we're doing at looking after the most vulnerable people and I'd start to ask some questions about whether or not we could direct some of our knowledge and the fundamental discoveries that we're making now about uh, human cognition, emotion regulation, all of those things, how we could direct those things towards helping those people are most vulnerable. I think one of the things that I've learned is that you can do a lot of really technical and difficult research, but unless you're actually impacting the people who need it the most and you're making a difference to their lives, then it's kind of not that meaningful. Kind of theoretical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 So you need to have that sense that people's lives are improving as a function of, of the research dollars that are being invested in, in mm. your work. Um, so I think, yeah, I'd, I'd direct my attention towards those groups and try to to see how we can help people who are really suffering the most at the moment. Yeah. Carolyn, thanks very much. That's been a really fascinating chat around, you know, the interactions between psychology, technology and AI. And thank you for being on the Discovery Pod. Thanks, Andy. Whether we're decoding trauma response or employing artificial intelligence to fill the gap in our mental health service, Carolyn's research has the potential to revolutionise the way we approach these issues. How would you feel talking to a machine about your mental health? Would you be comfortable in having your feelings turned into data? Would you be prepared to listen? Only time will tell. Thank you, Carolyn, for challenging our approach to mental health treatment on the Discovery Pod today. And thanks as well to you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave a review, rate us five stars, and while you're at it, why not share this episode with your friends and family? We'll be bringing you new and fascinating insights from the forefront of research and innovation every fortnight. So hit follow now to ensure you don't miss an episode. In our next episode, Professor Greg Mather joins the Discovery Pod to break down the science of green hydrogen. The work that we're doing is to try to bypass 
the use of electricity directly to do electrolysis, and that is to come up with a, a slight variation of electrolysis, and that's what we call photocatalysis, where we can take the energy of the sun directly in its simplest form. Just imagine a powder that you just sprinkle in a glass of water and you take it out to the sun, and like magic, hydrogen and oxygen bubbles, and then you can subsequently separate those. We've discussed some world-altering ideas on the podcast so far, but Greg's discovery could drastically improve the uptake of renewable energy sources and kickstart a cleaner future. Subscribe so you don't miss out. In the meantime, if you have a topic that you think we need to explore, you can get in touch at podcast at adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. So, what do you want to know next?